0: so for this week we are going to be looking at chapters four and six of the book that we've been going through so chapters four and six today and then chapter five tomorrow and then we'll take a break for a little bit uh... next week will be the last week so we're doing four and six today five next week and then we'll take a break So, all right uh... so chapter four the reason I put four and six together is they're both short, and chapter five is really long, and so uh, coming in folks, there's a handout on the back table there. Chapter four. James: 122 says this: "We all want to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Who wants to feel the failure? or share in the shame of being pegged as one who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. It would seem like Bible application is an essential discipline to consciously pursue, but that depends on how we define application. The key question is, what effect should regular Bible intake have on our hearts and lives, and how does it happen? And so... um, is the bible relevant to our lives does it have application to our lives 2 Timothy 3:16 to 17 says it's profitable for our maturity 1 Corinthians 10:6 and 11 says these things serve as examples they were written down for our instruction and then Romans 15:4 whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope So I don't think that we would argue that the Bible isn't useful for our lives today. The question is, in what way is it useful, and how do we arrive at that usefulness? Thomas Watson said this, Take every word as spoken to yourselves. When the word thunders against sin, think thus, God means my sins. When it presseth any duty, God intends me in this. Many put off scripture from themselves as if it only concerned those who lived in the time when it was written. But if you intend to profit by the word, bring it home to yourselves. The medicine will do no good unless it be applied. Uh, Perhaps the best illustration of this would be reading through the account of what happened in the lives of the Israelites and coming away with it something like this. Man, those guys were bad. Without ever thinking... In what ways is my life potentially like the lives of the Israelites? There's an important caveat that um, is given here by uh, David Mathis in the next paragraph. He says, Take every word as spoken to yourself with this essential anchor in place. Seek to understand first how God's words fell on the original hearers and how they relate to Jesus' person and work, and then bring them home to yourself expect application to your life as God speaks to us today through the spirit illumined understanding of what the inspired human author said to his original readers in the biblical text and the point that he's bringing out is an important point in that it meant something to those who read it originally and if we skip over from I just read the passage to um, and now I'm going to do what it's talking about we may misapply the text. Uh, For example, if we come to something in the book of Exodus where it talks about making sacrifices, and we fail to recognize where we are in history in relation to the work of Christ and Him being a once-for-all sacrifice for our sins, and there's no longer any need for us to offer sacrifices in anticipation of His coming, we might look at, at Exodus and say, All right. I need to go do this. And w- if we did that, we would miss two important points. One is, who is it written to? It was written specifically to the people of Israel. And secondly, what has happened in regard to the work of Christ? Christ has come, and so there's no longer any need for those sacrifices. Uh, there's the interesting question of what sort of sacrifices are being offered that are talked about in some of the prophetic books. Uh, we won't go into all of that today, but if nothing else it would simply be a perfect reminder of what christ has done not even then not the same thing that the israelites were doing so take scripture as relevant imperative and effective in your life but do so in a way that recognizes first who it was written to and, and what sort of things were being required of them, and how does that stand in relation to us in light of the person and work of Christ. Another important thing for us to think about is what he comes to on page 63, which is, should we think of application as an everyday means of God's grace? Should we pursue it with every biblical encounter? The answer is yes and no, depending on what we mean. Some good teachers say every encounter with God's Word should include one specific application to our lives, some particular addition, no matter how small, to who we are or to our daily to-do list. There is a wise intention in this, pressing ourselves to be not just hearers, but doers. But a simplistic approach to application overlooks the more complex nature of the Christian life and how true and lasting change happens in a less straightforward way than we may be prone to think. Much of our lives are spontaneous. Much of our decision-making is not after long periods of reflection. It happens in a particular moment and the spur of the moment reaction, words, and so forth flows much more out of who we are than perhaps what we have written on a note card on our fridge. Not that it's saying it's bad to write it on a note card on your fridge, but there has to be a recognition of that sort of, of how things work. So what does Paul pray for with regard to the effect of God's word in our lives? Uh, Mathis says he asks not that God gives us simple obedience to a clear to-do list, but wisdom to discern His will as we encounter life's many choices coming at us without pause. So let's look at those verses in a moment, but let me illustrate this. Is there a chapter and verse that, for example, says that a... Um, is there a chapter and verse that says a, a, a dating couple should not be alone in a house together at the same time for a long period of time? Is there anything that says biblically clearly you cannot do this, this is a sin? There's not chapter and verse on that, but wisdom would say what is likely to happen in that sort of scenario, maybe not the first time, maybe not the fifth time, but as time goes on, there is wisdom that says That's probably not the best and wisest course of action. This ties into what he's saying here. If we only want a to-do list, God says, here's the five things I need to do today, here's the 20 things I shouldn't do today. We're not arriving at the sort of maturity that Paul prays for, for example, in Romans 12, 2. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, I'm not saying that's disconnected from the clear commands that God has given, but sometimes it takes a little bit more work than just, does God say I can do this? Okay, he doesn't say I can't do this, so it must be okay. We have to take the commands and the principles and put them together and think about them and reflect on them, like we were talking about last week with regard to meditation, so that we can practice and grow in our ability to discern what pleases God. Or Philippians 1, 9-10, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. Or Colossians 1, 9-10, that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the lord fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of god rather than dictating specific actions the apostle wants us to see formed us formed into the kind of persons who are able to discern what is pleasing to the lord and then act in light of it so to illustrate this another way um, i went to a christian college it was a good christian college it helped trained me for what I'm doing now, so I don't have any regrets of that. There were, um, there were a lot of requirements and rules connected with going to that school. When I first went there, there was a bell that rang at 6.55. You had to be out of your bed with your feet on the floor. Depending on how lenient the person in charge of your hallway was, that could be that you were asleep but you had a leg hanging off the bed, or an arm, I mean. They did away with that rule later on. Was it a bad rule? No. Was it a a biblical mandate? No. There were some people in that environment who took those lists of rules and equated them with holiness and pleasing God. Not many, but a few. And so, for example, if someone had broken some of those rules, perhaps due to being naive, perhaps due to a series of careless choices. It was possible for someone who kept all of those rules to look down on that person and say, I'm better than that person because I keep all of these rules. We can have a similar approach to our Christian life. Uh, This kind of ties back into our discussion of conscience. We all have different lists of rules, some biblical, some from our parents, some from our work, some from a variety of experiences that we've been through. We have lists of rules in our mind. If we equate holiness with merely following those lists of rules, particularly the ones that aren't clearly laid out in Scripture, we are perhaps not arriving at the sort of maturity that Paul is praying for. Because Paul is praying not that we would ever ignore what God has said in His Word, but that we wouldn't just settle for, here's five verses that say five things. Okay, I'm doing those five things. I'm done. I don't ever have to learn anything else. That'll tie into the next chapter we're going to look at in a moment. We say, well, we wouldn't say that, but sometimes it's possible for us to approach things that way. And so, sometimes we want the Bible to be a rule book. We want it to be Robert's Rules of Order for conducting a business meeting. Why? Because that's easier. It's not very fun. I don't, I don't love Robert's Rules of Order. I had to take a speech class and the end of the speech class we had to lead a meeting for like 10 minutes and follow all the things in Robert's Rules of Order or whatever the other manual along those lines. And then we would get graded on how well we followed the rule book on on all of those sorts of things. If you know, if someone says this, you do this, and someone says that, you do that, that's really simple. It's easy. You don't have to do much thinking. But God didn't lay the Bible out that way. God laid the Bible out in such a way that, yes, there are things that we're clearly supposed to do, but there's a lot of behind-the-scenes work of saying, why does God say this, and what does this teach me about God, and sort of correlating all of these ideas together and that's a big part of application another important point is this John Piper says a godly life is lived out of an astonished heart a heart that is astonished at grace we go to the Bible to be astonished to be amazed at God and Christ and the cross and the grace and grace and the gospel This kind of application, most important to encountering God's Word, is such astonishment. Press the Scriptures to your soul. Pray for the awakening of your affections. Bring the Bible home to your heart. It's really just another way of commending meditation. And so, in the way that we looked last week, that we have Scripture reading, meditation, and prayer, there's also a sense in which it is Scripture reading, meditation, that also leads to application, perhaps after prayer. Meditating on God's words shapes our soul. Sometimes it yields immediate and specific points of application. Embrace them when they come. But be careful not to let the drive for specific actions alter the focus of our devotions from astonishment and seeking to have your soul happy in the Lord. Coming to the scriptures to see and to feel makes for a drastically different approach than primarily coming to do. The Bible is gloriously for us, but it is not mainly about us. We come most deeply because of whom we will see, not for what we must do. Become a kind of person, counsels Piper. Don't amass a long list. Again, he's not saying ignore the clear commands of Scripture, but he's saying the point of what God is doing in our lives is to transform us from one kind of person into another kind of person, not just to make us better at, we kept one kind of list of rules before we knew Christ, and now we keep a different kind of list of rules after we know Christ. He continues, this is the pathway we catch a glimpse of in the Old Covenant in Joshua 1.8. Meditation, then application, then blessing. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it for then you will have make your way prosperous and then you will have good success when bible reading first aims at astonishment it works in our hearts and changes our person which then prepares us for application an application of God's words to our lives prepares us for God's blessing of our souls so applying God's words to our lives is not only an effect of His grace to us, but also means to more grace. We might say, well, that's what God says to Joshua. That doesn't have anything to do with us. Jesus said in John 13, 17, If you know these things, blessed are you who, if you do them. James 1, If you are not a hearer only, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in what he is doing. And so if we take all of these ideas together... Um, There wasn't a whole lot of practical, like, how do I apply the Bible to my life? It's more about, like, what's the -the behind-the-scenes things that we need to be thinking about with regard to applying God's Word? It's changing us into a particular type of person. It leads to God's blessing in our lives. It's not primarily aimed at... um, It's not a mere academic exercise. It ought to be something that stirs our hearts. God is working in our lives and changing us to be more like Christ, and that ought to bring us joy and cause us to get stirred up. And sometimes if we approach God's Word and we say, all right, I need to find an application, it's kind of like when our kids have to do chores, or when you had to do chores when you were a kid, right? You did it because you had to, You didn't really want to do it, but you knew there was going to be trouble if you didn't, right? When we come to the Bible, we shouldn't have that sense of burden, of grudging duty. Sometimes our sinful hearts, that's where we've got to start. We've got to say, God says to do this, so I'm going to do it, even though I don't want to and I don't see the point. But the goal should be that we move past that, I'm just checking off the boxes to I want to do this, and I'm learning more about the God who saved me, and here is the effect that it's having in my life. And yes, it starts with, here's commands and principles and those sorts of things, but we, don't, we shouldn't be afraid to say, this principle and this principle and this principle, taken together, leads me to this conclusion. Can we say definitively and bindingly that every other Christian has to arrive at that exact same point? No, but we can say confidently that God's work in my life has led me to this conclusion, and so this is what I believe I need to do. Um, And so, as we come to application, does it stir our hearts? Does it lead us to maturity? Is it something that's a natural outflow of the earlier steps in the process? If we're not reading God's word, we can't apply it because we don't know what we're supposed to do, right? If we're not thinking about God's Word, our application is going to be superficial. This is a challenge for (laughs) preachers. Sometimes we don't want to apply God's Word because it's hard work to come up with specific applications. Or, because if we come up with specific applications, someone who's listening in the pew may say, Well, he didn't list off the specific thing that I'm sinning in or I'm struggling with, so I don't have to worry about that. So there's a couple of different ways that we need to approach it we need to recognize that we read god's word so we know what we're supposed to do we think about god's word so that we know what we're supposed to do not in general terms i ought to obey well what does obedience look like or we've just sinned well how did you get to that point well i did this well why did you do that sometimes we don't always don't know the answer to the why But sometimes it's helpful for us to sort of break down the steps what led me to a particular sin what sort of obedience does God require and that's where meditation comes in and that flows into prayer God help me with this God I'm amazed at who you are and it leads into application here's what I'm supposed to do so um, I don't remember the reference so we're not going to turn there but Let me just illustrate this and and show that God's word can be relevant to our lives, regardless of where it stands in the Bible. There's a passage in the Old Testament law, and it says this. When you get in the land, you need to build a parapet or a fence or a low wall around the roof of your house. So you're reading that and say, okay, so what did that mean to the original hearers? Right. Right. What sort of houses did they have? Flat roofs, okay. Why should you build a fence around it? Sure. So it was part of their living space. And, and why should you build something around the edge of a living space that's high up? Yeah, so people don't fall off. So what sort of things does that teach us about the people they were supposed to be and the God who commanded it to them? Okay, so we should love our neighbor as ourselves. That sounds like one of the commandments, right? And what does it teach us about God? He cares for us, and he, yeah, he wants us to care for other people. So that's what it meant to them. So if we said, alright, I'm going to apply that today, are there any parallel situations today in which we need to be concerned for our fellow man in the things that we do with our property, whether that be the church building or our house or something like that? Okay, rails on a staircase. What else? Okay, good. What else? I know winter seems a long way off, but what are some things we might want to do in the wintertime? Clear the snow, clear the ice. Um, what's that? I don't know, it was kind of warm this morning I was thinking about it for a minute. So. Um, or even just a simple thing, like in your house, I was carrying my water bottle in for the car and I dropped it on the floor, some of the water spilled out. I could have said, you know what, I'm busy, I don't feel like cleaning that up. But if I love my daughter and I don't want her to fall, I need to go wipe it up. Apparently, I didn't do a great job of wiping it up because Kelly walked through and she's like, why is the floor all wet? I did go and and wipe it up a little bit. So, what's my point? My point is we can take even what seems like an obscure passage in the Old Testament and ask questions like, what what was the significance for them? What were they supposed to be and do? What did God reveal about himself through these words? And then we can say, all right, so what am I supposed to do? It's not a command for me, because we're not under the law. But I think there's a principle there that teaches us about what God is like and what we're supposed to be like that still has relevance for today and that we can legitimately make the application and say, if God wanted the Israelites to do this, we ought to do this. That becomes more difficult with a passage like, don't boil the the baby goat, in its mother's milk. I don't have a good application for you from that one. Some of the commands in the Old Testament law, without a lot of additional reflection, the probably safe fallback is to say there was potentially some practice of the pagan world that God wanted to distinguish his people's life from, and so that's why he had them do it. I mean, things like Not wearing clothes that had the same, that had two kinds of fabric in it. Most of our clothes today are mixed fabric. Are we sinning? No, we're not under the law. Why did God want them not to do that? Because even as they're making their clothes, they're being reminded there's a separation, there's a difference, there's all of these things that God has built into our daily lives to remind us of the presence of sin, the division between us and the nations around us and the fact that we're set apart to God. I may not understand it, I may not love it, but I still need to do it, and and so on. Uh, New Testament passages are a little bit easier, but we still need to be careful, because sometimes um, there are passages that are clearly for a specific group of people. When um, Jesus said to Peter, leave your nets, come follow me, he's not saying to us, you can never go fishing. You could arrive at that application if you're being careless in the way that you apply the passage. What is he saying? What 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 would Jesus be saying to Peter, "Come leave your nets and follow me." about the world? Okay. Right. Okay. What else? Okay. What about the matter of that's the only way he knows how to provide for him? Does there have to be a degree of trust on God that he's going to provide for his needs? Um, what sort of, a- how, how would we apply an ap- uh, a passage like that to us today? Okay, calling, what's that? Never yeah, n- never go fishing. Yeah, that's the one we should not, all right. I think it would come through the path of understanding some of the things that Jesus said about discipleship. Following him sometimes means leaving things that were very important and the focus of our lives. Following him is a question of priority. Are you going to do this or are you going to follow me? Following him looks differently in different people's lives and following him involves him transforming us so that when we are at this point in our lives, we're different than we were at this point in our lives. Think about the sort of person that Peter was when Jesus said that to him. What are some adjectives that come to mind? Reckless. Reckless. Loud. Very rough yeah. And then we come to that scene on the beach where Jesus is talking to him about his betrayal. What's Peter's attitude? He's humble. He's broken. He's soft-spoken. He's not even willing to look Jesus in the eyes. And then we come to Pentecost. And then we come to the other passages that we see in the book of Acts. And then we see his words in First and 2 Peter. God changed him between there and between here. So there's so many different directions that we t- take an application of a passage like, leave your nets and come follow me. Not missing the point of what it originally said, but there's much room for reflection on many different things, sort of springboarding off that passage. All right, for sake of time, let's jump on to the next thing. Is that helpful, thinking through application in that way? This, God's word is relevant. We have to understand what it meant to them first before we take it to us now. And then uh, it can be something that can be enjoyable, not a must-do, must grudging kind of thing. Chapter six, I think, ties in well with the application idea. And there is a progression that the author had in mind, I'm not trying to completely ignore that, but for sake of time, chapter six is pretty short. And the title of it is basically this, Resolve to be a lifelong learner. Um, He makes the point on the first page that growing older doesn't always equate to being more mature. Maturity is tied to God's work in our lives, the degree to which we align ourselves with what Christ, what pleases Christ, what looks like Christ, and so on. Uh, he says to be a disciple means literally to be a learner. Our master is the consummate teacher, and the central task of his under-shepherds in the local church is teaching. God designed the church to be a community of lifelong learners, under the earthly guidance of leaders who are teachers at heart. The basic point that he's trying to get across is this. Sometimes we think when we're done with formal schooling, we're done with learning. There are people who get done with school. They never pick up a book again. They have little interest in learning new things. They just sort of go about their normal day of life. What are the challenges of that? just from like a job perspective if you have that attitude things change what else right sure yeah and in an even more important sense if we sort of say i've learned the basics of christianity i'm all set the words of hebrews come to mind you yourselves ought now to be teachers but you are still receiving milk instead of meat and so what we need to understand with regard to lifelong learning is we may get to a point where we know a ton of things about the bible what's the next step it's not retirement what is it Sander? okay good How is the next generation going to know the things that you know if no one teaches them? They won't. And that's sometimes why churches fail, because one generation knows a ton of things about God and follows God faithfully, but they fail to take that next step of teaching others. And the more that you teach, what do you realize? The less you know and the more you need to learn yourself, right? Right? And so, rather than saying, you know, I've got to this point, I'm just going to park here. I'm going to instead pass on truth to other people. The more I'm passing on truth to other people, the more I have to be taking in truth for myself, or the well runs dry, you have nothing left to say, and it doesn't help you or them. Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will be, bring it to completion. But then it says when, at the day of Jesus Christ. And so the work's not done until Jesus comes back or we die and go to be with him. And so that is an, an ongoing process. All, and here's an interesting thought. Are all of our questions about the way that God has worked in his plan or will work, do you think those will all be answered the moment that we get to heaven? No, but Ephesians 2.7 says this, In the coming ages, God will show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in christ jesus we may not ever even in eternity know everything there is to know but i think that as time goes on we will know more about god and have more reason to praise him and and so on and so forth so that leads us to two things what and how what is it that we ought to learn as christians Okay, and where do we do that? Through his, Through his Word. So the what is God's Word. But importantly, and I think that's what you're getting at, when we say learners, we don't mean of mere facts, information, and head knowledge. We mean all that and more. We don't just learn facts, but we learn a face. We're not just learners of principles, but of a person. We are lifelong learners in relationship with Jesus as we hear His voice in His Word and have his ear in prayer, and share in community with his body, all through the power of his spirit. It's not disconnected from objective statements about God recorded in the written word. But those statements are supposed to lead us to have a relationship with the person who is God, the three persons who are God, not just, I sort of know facts that I've read on a page. We press on to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with all the fullness of God, according to Ephesians 3. The heart of lifelong learning that is truly Christian is not merely digging deeper in the seemingly bottomless store of information about the world, humanity, and history, but plunging into the infinite flood of Christ's love and how it comes back to this in its boundless breadth and length and height and depth and seeing everything else in its light. The center of lifelong learning for the Christian is this, knowing and enjoying God himself in Christ through the gospel word and the written word of the scriptures in the hearing and reading and study and meditation and memorization of the Bible. And so that's why he has this idea of lifelong learning. So the what is the word, what are some ideas, some practical helps for the how. First of all, vary your sources and seasons. Sometimes we think there is one and only one path to growing in our knowledge of God. How many of you love to read? Okay, how many of you would rather listen to something, listen to something? How many of you would rather watch something? How many of you would rather talk to somebody than do any of those things? So, here are some ideas that are ways that we could learn more about Christ. Personal conversations with mature believers. Books, classes, educational videos, listening to recorded audio. Consider how these things will change in various seasons of life. College or seminary can be concentrated seasons for classroom instruction. Having a long commute or a manual labor job that permits it, you can take advantage of audiobooks and sermons. Evaluate the particulars of your season of life and choose the media and venues most conducive to ongoing learning about God, the world, and yourself. There are some things that I think are fixed ways that, that should just be a normal part of our Christian life. The public reading of scriptures and collectively gathering to reflect on them, I think that that's a given. But the ways that we grow in our knowledge of God throughout the week, there's room for flexibility in terms of what is more helpful. And sometimes we need to push ourselves. You might say, I don't, I mean, just for me personally, just as an example, I don't prefer listening to things because I can read a lot quicker than I can listen to something. But is it probably good for me to slow down and listen to things from time to time? I think so. And so even if something's not your preferred way of learning, maybe push yourself and give it a try. Secondly, create space and redeem spare time. If you work a full-time job or have a young family, it can be difficult to make time for a formal class or something like that. But you can create small windows for learning. Five or 10 minutes of reading as you go to bed at night. a Few extra minutes of lingering over the scriptures in the morning. Read an article a day from something like he recommends the Gospel Coalition, and much of what they write is good. Or put a bookmark in a print book or an e-reader as you work through a good book. Thirdly, mind your mindless moments. There's a place for mental rest, recreation, ball games, TV, and so on, but a lifelong learner will want to take care that most of life's spare moments are not cannibalized by mere mindless entertainment. There is an attitude in our society that we rush through our day of work or our week of work or our life of work and get to the point where we don't have any obligations of anything to do, and then we can just sort of relax. Relaxing is good, but we don't, first of all, appreciate it, except as contrasted with work. And sometimes it reveals a wrong attitude toward work in light of what we've seen about that in Genesis, that it was a good thing that God gave us. And also, the idea that even if you are watching a movie, listening to a song, what, consuming the news in some way, we don't just turn our minds off and coast. We can be actively thinking, questioning, considering how this contrasts or supports truths that God has revealed. Fourthly, adapt to new media. It becomes a challenge as we grow older because it's more difficult for us to learn new things. But hopefully you can see potential advantages alongside distractions of moving from, for example, a, a library of books that spans four or five or ten shelves to something that you can carry around and constantly have with you. Now there's distractions and challenges with that as well. Sometimes I find it's easier for me to take a paper copy of the Bible and a pencil and a notebook and just go sit somewhere so that I'm not distracted by things popping up on my phone or my laptop or whatever. But there's a time and a place for saying I have access to 5,000 books and I can carry it around with me in something that weighs less than three pounds. That's an amazing reality that we have today and so if we have opportunity to take advantage of those things we should consider them Uh, and not Technology can be dangerous if we don't understand the why of how it was designed and the distractions associated with it and all those sorts of things. But it can also be a useful tool. Fifthly, embrace the identity of learner. Not a huge fan of the word identity, but we can, I think, stand behind the idea of what it's saying. If you say I am someone who needs to constantly be learning about God, then you'll make time for it, I think is the bottom line. It's not something that's set aside to just when I was in school or just when I feel like it. It's something that I will intentionally do and continue doing. And if if knowing God is at its core a key component of eternal life, John 17.3 says this, This is eternal life, that you know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. If knowing Him is a key aspect of eternal life, it can't be something that we say, I'm done with when I'm 30 or 40 or 50. This is something that continues throughout our lives. So application, something that we learn to love instead of see merely as a task to be done, something that takes work but is profitable when we do the work, and something that is a natural outflow of the other things that we're talking about read contemplate or meditate pray apply and keep learning about god in all of these different ways whether it's reading god's word or meditating on god's word or praying through god's word or as we'll look at next week memorizing god's word or applying God's Word, all of these things are things that we ought to constantly be involved with throughout our Christian lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the privilege and the opportunity to, first of all, to have access to your Word in so many different ways. Thank you for the fact that your words still speak truth thousands of years after they were first written. Thank you that they have important impact on our lives, not just brief sections from the New Testament, but the whole of your Word uh, can be part of our lives that teaches us of who you are and who we are and uh, what you want from us and, and all of these different things. Lord, help us to be committed to this process Not to see it as something that we have ever arrived at. But like Paul, we say, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.